Hello and welcome to Vitals, where we explore the most pressing topics in healthcare and data. Today, we're getting a pulse on the scope and importance of HPV vaccination, specifically how patient outreach campaigns and proper provider engagement can improve vaccination rates and contribute to a reduction in prevalence of associated cancers. Joining us are Drs. Thomas Shook, Chief Information Officer at South Boston Community Health Center, Dr. Jay Lee, Medical Director at Integrated Health Partners of Southern California, and Dr. Daniel Faden, Assistant Professor at the Department of Otolaryngology at Harvard Medical School. Our moderator today is Dr. Kate Bien, Chief Medical Officer here at Arcadia. Dr. Bien, I'm gonna pass it over to you to get this conversation started. Thank you so much, Mike, appreciate it. So welcome everybody. Um, and you know, it's a very important topic we'll be talking about today. You know, many of you are likely part of an ACO organization or working within the value-based care space. Um, and also likely know that um, one of the cornerstones of uh, high-performing networks in value-based care are, is preventive care. And today we'll be talking about one of those preventive care strategies, and that is HPV vaccination. Within the panel, we'll be talking about some of the some of the topics will include, you know, why are we even talking about HPV and why is it important? Uh, we'll also be talking about uh, the importance of patient engagement and education, as well as provider ed education and engagement. We'll be talking about barriers to vaccination. Uh, we'll hear a little bit about how, you know, the rates for HPV vaccinations are lower than others. And so why is that? We'll also talk about the role of data and technology within uh robust vaccination programs. Um, and then finally, we'll really think of be looking at HPV vaccination as sort of a rising tide in a model to actually uh, for other vaccination programs and preventive care in general. So, so Dr. Shook and Dr. Lee and uh, Dr. Faden, really great to see you again. I know we saw each other in Boston uh, last month. Thanks so much for being here. So we know that HPV is responsible for, so some of the whys, HPV is responsible for over 90% of cervical cancers. In addition to that, 70% uh, of vaginal and vulvar cancers, and then approximately upwards of 70% of oropharyngeal cancers. Um, some of the recent evidence is pointing to that. So when we think about, typically think about HPV, we think about cervical cancer. We also think about vac vaccination in terms of who should we get vaccinated as women or maybe even teenage girls. And so, but what we know though, based on what we just discussed is that actually it's a much broader problem to address. And so Dr. Faden, I'd like to go to you first. And, you know, if you could give us a little bit of background about you're an ENT doc, right? So, and you know, why is HPV vaccination important to you uh, from your from your perspective and, and HPV in general? Yeah, so a um, couple of reasons. So, so I'm a head and neck surgical oncologist, so I take care of patients who have malignancies um, of their upper aerodigestive tract. And it turns out that HPV causes the vast majority of oropharynx cancer. So these are cancers in the back of your throat. And in places like Boston, um, that number you can see here on the screen, this is 60, 70%. It's more like 90% in places like Boston. In fact, these are now the most common HPV-associated cancers in the United States. So about 10 years ago, uh, oropharynx cancer surpassed cervical cancer as the most common HPV-associated cancer in the U.S. 
Now, that's, that's not true worldwide. Worldwide, it's still definitely cervical cancer because of less access or stigma associated around cervical cancer screening. But in the U.S., these are the most common cancers. And so I take care of these patients. That's, that's uh, reason number one. And then it turns out that my research laboratory uh, is focused on, on HPV-associated cancers as well. So we spend a lot of time taking care of patients with HPV-associated cancers and thinking about and studying them. Interesting. And, and it's interesting. I was talking to an ENT physician the other day, and she mentioned that she, when she went into ENT medicine, uh, her thinking was that she would really be thinking talk, taking care of patients from up here. And in fact, it's very different. And so now she's focused on, uh, as you just discussed, oral pharyngeal cancers. And so that was not really anticipated when she first started practicing. Um, So, Dr. Shook, we'd like to go to you next. Um, And, you know, we have guidelines around HPV vaccinations um, and they're relatively clear. Um, Despite that, though, um, we still have lower rates for vaccination, HPV vaccination compared to other vaccinations. Um, could you talk a little bit about, you know, your experience as, you know, a pediatrician um, and why, I guess, first of all, if you could kind of give us a little high level view of the of the, the guidelines in particular, but then talk about why, um, how it is that HPV became very important to you and vaccination. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's been, I mean, I've been in practice for 15 years. I think HPV vaccine came out in 2010 or earlier even. Um, certainly during my residency. Either way, it's been around for a long time. Uh, and the introduction of timing was at the 11 to 12 year old visit, which matches how the CDC already had a construct for giving out the tetanus vaccine at that age. And most school systems have that as like a seventh grade requirement. So it's a very easy place to say, let's try to get this uh, new vaccine in place. Um, As pediatricians, we love vaccines. We know this is a a great preventative tool. Um, And I think what we've been struggling with over the last 20 years with HPV vaccine is sort of understanding who should get it since it started initially just for females and then spread to males as part of the recommendations. And then combating that, oh, it's something for warts and cervical cancer, and that's a long time away and realizing, well, the science is that this is a highly transmissible uh, virus that basically 100% of the society gets. Uh, It's not passed only with sex, but with skin-to-skin contact as well. And so if we're gonna give it as prevention, we need to give it before you have that skin-to-skin contact. So um, even though it's recommended, it's sort of been treated as an optional or add-on vaccine, um, but, it, the, you know, we now know in, in societies that have made this a requirement, like in Australia, that this is definitely a cancer prevention strategy. Uh, and, you know, I think everybody agrees that cancer sucks. So this is, you know, for me, something very important to help me protect the patients that we're serving at my health center. Thank you so much. Dr. Lee, so as a family uh, medicine physician, you know, you, you take care of all ages. Can you talk a little bit about how uh, HPV vaccination has changed the scope of it, um, as well as, you know, who you're recommending it to has changed since you first started practicing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think since TJ called out how many years he's been out, I'm a PGY21, uh, still still learning and 
continuing to, you know, it's lifelong learning as, as physicians. Uh, I am a family doc. I um, have cared for folks, uh, we say cradle to grave, uh, womb to tomb. And uh, absolutely, the, the recommendations have changed over time, uh, largely due to science, you know, uh, because of the advancement of science. Um, as many folks are aware, in order to get FDA approval, um, you uh, need to have um, sort of set criteria for whom uh, you are uh, testing the, the medication, or in this case, vaccination. And indeed, as uh, Dr. Shook mentioned, um, this was first tested uh, amongst um, teenage teenage girls. Um, and since then, um, you know, the, the recommendations have been increased uh, to all adults uh, uh, at up to the age of 45. And for those that are above the age of 26, there's a an informed consent or I mean, there's always informed consent, but there's sort of a shared decision-making model that's uh, recommended uh, for individuals uh, as they get to those uh, uh, later stages of their life uh, beyond teenage uh, years. And so it's it's really important that um, this is to note that this is not just a transaction. A lot of the, the trust that comes with um, having someone stick a needle in your arm comes from a relationship that, that one has. Um, and uh, certainly your trusted pediatrician, family physician, internist, uh, surgeon, and in the case of Dr. Faden, uh, are the ones that um, can are there to deliver the message and um, kind of support not just the science, but also the, I really care for you. I want you to get this vaccination. It's gonna make a difference in preventing cancer. Thank you so much. So we've established, you know, it's critically, critically important. It should be thought of as a cancer prevention vaccine. Um, but let's switch over to barriers. So, um, you know, we've got clear guidelines. Um, we know it's effective, but yet uh, the, the screening rates lag or the vaccination rates lag well behind others. Um, and, and here on, you can see on the slide that only about 54% of teens have received it actually. So lower than other when you compare it to other vaccines of that age group. Um, and then even in adults where there are some recommendations around it and, you know, employing shared decision making, as you have just pointed out, Dr. Lee, it is still not really um, even discussed many times in that population. And so, you know, Dr. Shook, I think that, you know, in earlier conversations, you actually described HPV vaccine as a second tier vaccine. Um, and so, you know, in terms of a, in the context of it, a barriers, can you tell us why you said that? And, you know, how does this in fact contribute to lower vaccination rates? Yeah, I think you're right. There's this long tail. And again, if that's some of the um, guidelines changing or the considerations, or you only looked at it when it first came out. So certainly I think, although uh, people often talk about vaccine hesitancy amongst families. I think in, in a lot of my work, I've seen just that lagging of understanding also within providers. And so uh, to even you know add to what Dr. Lee was mentioning, again, having that strong recommendation from the provider, I think is what helps bring along most of the vaccine acceptance uh, for families. Uh, I think part of this also with the changing guidelines is that um, the you it's recommended at 11 but you can actually start at nine so this idea of nine is fine uh, really helps to start early and then um, 
uh, and then reconsider often at all the other interval visits before 11 or 12 or ongoing uh, to try to not only start the vaccine, but also complete it. Because so, that's the other barrier. There's the, um, you can, there are metrics we can try to follow just even starting, but this is still, uh, if you start under 15 years old, this is a two-dose series separated um, by six months. If you start at 15, then you do have to do the more traditional three-dose series. Um, but, you know, by starting at nine, this also gives more opportunities so that when it's cold and flu season like it is now, and you have, you're due for tetanus and meningitis, and then, oh, there's a seasonal flu, there's a seasonal COVID vaccine, that people are oftentimes just saying, well, that HPV vaccine is optional. So kind of, you know, trying to train providers to think about sort of HPV first, because again, this is a prevention vaccine, we need to get it in early. Um, and then, you know, or thinking about how to put it in between, not, not be the, the sixth vaccine on the list, so. Great, thank you. And so, you know, you really just described, um, you know, there's all sorts of barriers. Sometimes there are patient barriers, um, but really provider barriers, right? So what I'm hearing is that there's probably a lack of clarity around guidelines because they have changed a bit. Um, and then in terms of, um, uh, along with those guidelines goes education uh, with, physicians and other clinicians about HPV and, uh, you know, when to give it, when to start giving it and who to give it in. So it sounds like we need to really focus more on it, provider education as well. Yep. I, I think so. And I think that's where I've seen the biggest benefit by not only changing the system, since I'm also an informat uh, in informatics, uh, but, you know, pairing that with provider education. So, Thank you. Dr. Lee, so um, let's switch over and think about patient and, and even family caregiver barriers. So treating children, um, there have been historically some parental concerns uh, for those who are under 18 uh, for which the vaccine is recommended. Can you share some of those common misconceptions and maybe how you've kind of uh, worked with the parents in terms of trying to overcome them? Yeah, I think the the most common uh, sort of uh, thing that I hear from parents is, oh, you know, we're not even thinking about the cervix in my in my uh, in my daughter. Um, you know, is this going to encourage her to um, begin sexual activity? And I usually quip right away. Um, well, if that were the case, then we'd have a bunch of people lining up at the door to get vaccinated. And we're and we're not. Um, and uh, you know, this is this is to prevent cancer, not just of the cervix because we have the data now, right? Um, but of uh, oral pharyngeal cancers and uh, other types of cancers. So, uh, you know, think of this as a as a cancer prevention uh, mechanism. And I would say, you know, I'm I'm, I'm bet for if I were playing baseball, I'd be ha I'd have a pretty good batting percentage. Um, you know, it's it's about 50-50. And then with those interval visits, as Dr. Shook mentioned earlier, uh, you continue to bring it up much in the same way that we would uh, approach somebody who is um, as a smoker. Uh, you don't just ask once, you ask multiple times. And you find that sometimes on that fifth or sixth time, you get that breakthrough moment with the patient. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of it is um, being available to answer questions and to lean into them rather than to be dismissive. 
um, and um, to allow patients to ask and parents to ask questions uh, and to answer them as truthfully and as honestly as you can. Um, I, now that I'm a parent and I have teenagers in the house, uh, I can uh, say truthfully that you know my 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 kids have gotten it and that that, that they didn't suddenly de you know develop the ability to get 5G or have a chip inserted into them. <laughs> you know that this is uh, you know truly something that we did that my that my wife and I. I decided to do for our children because um, it's important to their health. Thank you. So taking the time, I'm sorry, somebody got to chime in there? No. So taking the time to connect with patients, um, answer questions, um, and really build a trusting relationship uh, is important. And obviously that's important in, in everything that we do in mm -hmm. healthcare. So thank you, Dr. Lee. Um, uh, Dr. Faden, um, can you talk, so you're seeing a lot of head and neck cancers that are related to HPV. Can you discuss barriers that you might be seeing in terms of vaccination? Yeah, well, so I think, you know, as we talked about, the recommendations for vaccination have changed a lot over time. And just a few years ago, the age range was significantly expanded, so out to 45. So the, ma the majority of patients who develop um, HPV-associated cancers, especially oral pharynx cancers, get these cancers late in life, in their 50s and 60s. What's pretty amazing or astounding about this virus is that you get these infections at your peak points of sexual activity. So that's in your 20s. And these infections stay around for many, many years. So like 30 years before you develop the cancer. So people now who are getting their cancers, it's too late. You know, they had these infections 30, 30 years ago. Um, they missed their, their opportunity. Um, so the, the, um, the time has passed uh, for those patients. Um, what we're, what we're focused on now is obviously trying to deliver vaccines, um, pre-sexual debut, so in children before they ever expose the virus, and catch-up vaccination and share decision-making vaccination. Those are the two other groups, catch-up vaccination being 18 to 26, uh, and then share decision-making 27 to 45. Um, and I think, you know, in those patients, it's the same barriers that exist um, uh, in slightly different ways. So reasons that patients, adult patients aren't vaccinated I think there are a fewfold. One, general vaccine hesitancy. That's true for all vaccines. Um, stigma associated, particularly with the HPV vaccine, because people think it's related to sex or um, making you more sexually active, um, which of course is you know not true. Access to care in general. Um, many adult patients who aren't vaccinated, it's, it's an access issue. They have less interactions with the healthcare system. Mm -hmm. They came from outside the United States and didn't weren't offered the vaccine. Um, so those are the patient-centric barriers. And then there's the provider barriers that were already mentioned. I think those largely fall into um, changing recommendations and providers not understanding the new recommendations or, or being up to date uh, on them, um, uh, as well as um, not feeling, and this is supported by the literature, not feeling well-informed to discuss uh, this topic with patients. So if you poll primary care physicians, you know, a decent percentage, you know, don't feel comfortable explaining that actually throat cancers are caused by the, you know, HPV and they're actually more common than cervical cancer and you get it through oral sex and, uh, you know, these kind of topics that people may, may or may not feel comfortable having those conversations. So there's a, there's a, there's a provider barriers as well. And that's, that can be improved with education as well. Thank you. So, so one of the other, I think, common barriers in, in medicine in general, and, and there's a, a lot of focus on it now are social risks and health-related social risks. Do you, any for any of the panelists, um, do you see that as, as a factor in uh, 
you know, HPV vaccination. And I know you mentioned access to care. So that's one. And that's usually related sometimes to, um, you know, less resources, um, being more economically disadvantaged. Um, any, any others that might be related to uh, barriers for HPV vaccination? Yeah, so, so I've been interested in focus because I run, I work most of the adult patients of vaccination on just the general lack of interactions with young, healthy males and the healthcare system. So mm-hmm. young men in their 20s in particular and 30s have very little reason to interact with the healthcare system often. There are no, there are very few or no recommended um, intervention screening approaches, uh, reasons for people to interact with healthcare physicians. And many young men don't, don't do that unless they have some acute problem. You know, they, ha- they have an earache, they fell and you know, broke their arm, some other reason. So um, there's, unlike women who regularly see a GYN, for example, or may have other uh, interactions with the healthcare system, uh, one of the barriers for young men, for example, is just lack of access, lack of interaction with the healthcare system, in which someone particularly may be offering them a vaccine. Thank you. And I know that um, in terms of cost, um, is it covered? Is the vaccine traditionally covered? And I, I believe it is. Um, it is covered traditionally. Um, and the one question I would ask, is it covered in the older in older population? I would yeah, hope so. So, yeah, anyone who has insurance, the vaccine is covered. Uh, we actually, in our program, had, have done audits um, periodically to make sure everyone's vaccine, they weren't, no one was getting a bill. And, um, and so it's always been covered by insurance. Uh, you know, this, it, these are... U.S. Preventive Task Force and CDC, you know, recommendations now. So um, it should be covered by insurance. Yeah, and uh, one other thing that I might add here is um, now that we're on this side of the public health emergency, uh, I I think some of the challenges have been um, that as we've made this large pivot to telehealth and, and other things that, you know, are very convenient from a patient perspective, uh, it's really hard to vaccinate people if they're on a screen. And so <laughs> encouraging people to come in to be seen, um, you know, we, we have a lot of patients who um, uh, elect, you know, choose to, to be seen uh, via tele, which is, which is wonderful. I'm glad that we've adopted the technology uh, for that. But uh, there are some things like vaccinations that you can't do uh, through the screen. Um, and, um, you know, honestly, folks, people are not gonna to go to their local pharmacy to get a vaccine that's recommended without having that conversation with their, with their primary care physician or their, or their other trusted physician. So I think that's gonna be a challenge, an ongoing challenge I, I, it, that's related to the pandemic as we're escaping the, the gravitational pull of all that. Um, I think um, you know, to try to get everyone kind of focused back on getting in so that they're getting all of their preventive uh, things inclusive of, of vaccines. Thank you. Um, so let's talk a little bit about patient engagement. Um, and, you know, we know that there, you know, somebody mentioned shared decision making, which I think is a really important um, way to engage patients, especially with more complicated conversations. Um, in addition to that, you know, having um, broad vaccination campaigns where you include education and why is it important. We saw a lot of this with COVID, how important that was, and it was important with different populations as well, um, and, and really customizing those those messages uh, with populations. Um, and, you know, especially with something like HPV, which is so underutilized, education is very important. And as we've discussed, both important not only for patients and families, but, but for healthcare providers too. 
Um, but, but at the end of the day, um, you know, at the center of this is, is the patient. So how do we really engage patients? Um, and Dr. Shook in the pediatric population, I know Dr. Lee has talked a little bit already, um, but, you know, um, having those conversations with parents, um, anything, any other strategies that you have in terms of engaging, um, those populations that, you know, Dr. Lee may not have covered. Yeah, I think. To try to add to this, I think um, even from Dr. Faden, I mean, I think we, even as a pediatrician, certainly after, and this feeds into the social risk as well, I was just thinking about that, like, really after that state-mandated 11 to 12-year-old exam, uh, the number of patients that present in their teenage years just really drops off. So mm-hmm. some states do have uh, laws mandating like a 11th grade enrollment uh, physical. So you might see them at 16 years old. Um, but if they're not doing sports, again, if they don't have an engaged caregiver who wants to be checking in on their wellness every year or some other, you know, some healthcare plans now have incentives for bringing in for physicals, um, realizing that after that 11 to 12 year old visit, the <laughs> Uh, they need to be in the health center. That's what I'm saying. You need to have the patients in front of you. And um, so I think, again, most of the strategies I've tried to implement at our organization to get a high coverage rate is about um, trying to make every visit a vaccine opportunity. So again, turning on the preventive care reminders to start at nine, making care alerts so that every, you know, again, they come in with a sore throat, uh, but this is your opportunity to try to do whole person health, bring up the vaccine, um, because again, uh, patients, when trying to do recalls uh, as part of our continuous quality improvement, we found high, you know, high acceptance rates on the phone. Yes, they'll come in and then get that vaccine, but then a very high no-show rate uh, when actually scheduling those visits, which then takes away nursing visit access for other things. So. Um, sort of been just trying to focus in, if you're here, let's try to do everything that we can is sort of the approach. Um, In terms of, you know, sometimes access and and Dr. Faden, you touched on access, you know, with the COVID COVID vaccine and even the flu vaccine, um, I think what has helped immensely is the ability for patients to go to their local pharmacy um, to get those vaccines. Um, and it just, you know, sometimes, you know, you've got, we've got a lot of CVSs and Walgreens and other pharmacies around that are, are very helpful and close to where people live. Is that similar? Could that be similar to the HPV vaccination? In terms of a strategy? He's lost his connection. I can at least. Oh, uh, okay. Lost his connection. I didn't see that. Okay. Uh, that um, I think one of the post-pandemic things is that in order to do COVID vaccine, I think most states encourage that if you're going to do COVID vaccine, no matter where you are at, a pharmacy, you know, a stadium, a school, you had to then connect into their immunization registries on the state level. And so at least everybody's pulling into those registries uh, and many EHRs have ways to then pull back out so that no matter where the patient's getting their care, 
that again you can you can sort of know in the in the next visit in the next moment if they're up to date with their vaccination. Yeah, and I'll I'll add um, there's uh, opportunities uh, for us to think kind of beyond uh, I guess the four walls right of a clinic or a pharmacy uh, during COVID. Uh, in particular, and I, I, this is more of a use case for COVID, but I think similar models could be done for HPV and, and other vaccines. You know, we had a lot of um, community events where we had uh, large scale vaccination and uh, by and large, we centered those around schools uh, because schools, as it turns out, are um, designed to be in convenient places for people to walk and, and to be uh, seen. And so um, uh, we we definitely leverage that. And I, I I know that there's some questions in the Q and A about equity and um, you know ways to get access for for patients who may be underserved, uh, communities of color, et cetera. And I think the sooner that you can, the easier that you can make it accessible, uh, you know, uh, whether that be in a community or or at a church or at a school. Um, then those opportunities for uh, having the conversation, for having vaccination and improving those rates uh, can happen. Uh, ideally, we'd like to have the, that happen in the office, but we also know that that's not always the, the place that patients come, as, as we noted earlier. Thank you. So in terms of, so Dr. Lee, you know, switching over to another patient engagement uh, technique, if you will, shared decision-making. So can you talk a little bit more about what exactly that is um, and how you might be using it in your, um, you know, your older population? And when I mean older, the non-traditional, what we think of as, as HPV vaccination populations. Yeah. I, so the, the old school way of doctoring, of uh, cajoling a patient, you know, and saying, I'm the doctor, you know, you listen to me. Uh, it just doesn't work uh, anymore. <laughs> and, um, you know, patients come in armed with information that they got off the internet or, you know, rumors that they may have heard from a coworker or, or, or a family member. And so uh, knowing that there's sort of that, for lack of a better way of putting it, sort of um, baggage that patients come in with, part of our job is to unpack that, right, a, a bit. And um, I, I take it similar to uh, uh, motivational interviewing in the sense that, you know, I take the sense of uh, an approach of, uh, may I share some information with you? May I, uh, you know, I'm curious about that. Could you tell me a bit more? And uh, approaching it kind of like a history and physical from a doctor's perspective to sort of understand what their line of thinking is and then trying to find those opportunities where I can kind of wedge some information in there. To, to open the conversation a bit more. And what you find is, you know, there's some patients who are, who are just flat out, um, they won't even allow you to do that and that's okay. Um, but for those that are open, uh, you can have a, a much uh, deeper conversation about what their fears may be uh, and can often overcome them, um, giving them, arming them with that knowledge so that they can go on feeling fully confident that, they're, um, that they, they'll get a vaccine that it's safe and that it's going to be uh, very effective at preventing cancer uh, down the line. Thank you, thank you. And Dr. Faden, um, you know, we've talked about patients and families engagement. We've talked about 
healthcare providers. Um, are there other stakeholders um, in your experience um, in, in what you've done around HP vaccinations that really need to be included in building a robust program? Yeah, there's, there's, you know, two things. So um, I think one, from my perspective, is, you know, educating um, individuals who, who have the opportunity to give vaccines about changing recommendations um, and um, uh, sort of topics in which they may or may not feel comfortable talking. So that, so that, that largely means um, um, pediatricians, um, uh, family physicians, uh, APPs who work in that space, um, to let them know sort of the changing demographics of this disease process. It may not be the same as when they were in medical school, for example, uh, changing recommendations. That's number one. And then the second thing is the healthcare systems. So, you know, I've rolled out one large point of care HIV vaccination program at one hospital system about three or four years ago that we've been running. And now I'm um, rolling out the second of those um, at a different, very large healthcare system. And, you know, getting people, getting the healthcare system to understand the importance um, uh, and that it's really not that complicated. Um, there's some small barriers, but they're easily overcome. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, I think getting the, the healthcare system on board, making them realize these major gaps in vaccination coverage that we're talking about, and that we can we can overcome this actually relatively easily if we spend a little bit of time thinking about it and doing it. Um, those are the two, you know, uh, the, the two sort of general categories of stakeholders that are, you know, easily addressed. Right. No, I think I think uh, in, in terms of health systems, critically important to get health systems, the organization and leaders within that behind it um, to support it. So thank you, um, Dr. Lee. And this will be the last question on, on engagement. But let's talk about actually, you know, so you're a physician leader over a network of, of physicians. And so there are many things that, you know, you're working on and sometimes have to employ change management. Um, and so, you know, how would you go about um, educating your network around this in particular? Yeah, so uh, a lot of it is that sort of credibility that you bring in uh, as, a, as a physician leader. Uh, I, you know, I continue to see patients, so, uh, and I, I let my clinical committee know, uh, you know, it's a, it's a peer group of, of medical directors and CMOs. They're, they're all aware that I continue to see patients and that uh, the things that um, they're uh, struggling with are, are very relatable and things that I can understand. Um, and then I think a, a big piece of that is uh, ensuring that you have uh, sort of meeting cadences or meeting structures to have conversations that are not just unidirectional. And some of it's going to be by, by nature uh, sort of uh, educational in the sense of I'm, I'm giving you information, but I think creating uh, space and opportunity for uh, clinicians to share their strategic kind of mindset. Uh, and some of that could be looking at barriers. Some of it could be looking at, you know, looking at the data and saying, you know, this health center is really kicking some butt on this measure. Can you guys share what you're doing? Uh, that way that there's, uh, you know, opportunity within the network. And in our network, we have nine health centers that are servicing 350,000 patients in three counties. So it's a large uh, geography and a large number of patients. But um, we've been working very intentionally towards pivoting our meetings to be less about information dumping that could just be an email um, and really kind of having those tactical conversations about, well, this is what the care gaps look like. 
how do we do a better job of um, understanding that, knowing that we have the data in hand, um, you know, how do we engage better with the population? And we're, you know, no, no option is dumb, uh, you know, and, and invariably it's going to require probably three to five, maybe even more strategies to get folks to, to, to do the things that they need to do. And in, in, in particular with HPV, um, that's true. It's going to be multimodal. Uh, you know, some of it's going to be leveraging social media channels, right, to get information out there. A lot of it's going to be using uh, platforms like Arcadia to help with text outreach, uh, and so that we understand and have visibility to that data. Um, it's going to involve uh, staff members making phone calls and uh, showing up to community events. So, uh, not there's not one thing that's going to do it. It's going to be a, a kind of a, a broader based approach that's going to get uh, us closer to uh, herd immunity, if you will. Thank you so much. And that was a great segue for our ne next topic around this. And that is actually using data and technology, um, not only HPV vaccination, but for, for any kind of campaigns or, or preventive care screenings. Um, and so Dr. Shook, I wanna kind of go to you first. Um, you, you know, you actually, um, received an award for the work that you did in, within your, um, your organization at improving HPV vaccination rates. And that was really using technology and data to do that. Um, could you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think part of this is realizing, uh, at least initially, like I see some of the threads about, um, this was other theme was about value-based care. And again, a lot of the pediatric measures are not, <laughs> nobody wants to do the penny of prevention for the pound of cure. Um, but there are quality metrics um, that are related to adolescent vaccination. There's a HEDIS measure um, about completion by 13 years old. Um, but part of this overall is no matter what strategy you take, it's about just starting to track the data, right? Do you, do you have a process metric to even know how many HPV vaccines you're giving in a week or a month? You know, what ages are you giving them at? Um, and then also tracking completion, like what age are we, because um, obviously looking for an outcome metric is going to take longer time, but you can set yourself up for those quick wins by looking at just the process metric of um, are we actually, whatever strategy we implement, are we actually making quick wins? Um, and so I love control charts to help show that variability as well over time because most kids, you know, despite the efforts to try to put in clinical decision support to remind about vaccinations due at every visit, uh, majority, there is a mindset that sort of vaccines are given at physicals. And so uh, I, I now have years of data showing that we really spike over the summer with these vaccines. Um, so I think, you know, part of it's just, right, you gotta, you gotta be tracking what you're doing and knowing um, there is always a QI bump, right? If it, this is your campaign of the month, you're talking about it, that's just going to bring it up, uh, up in mind with people. And so uh, even with my own data, we saw that when we did this as a all health center QI effort, before I could even build the tools, <laughs> that uh, we had a great bump in HPV vaccine. But uh, in making this sort of changing the culture of that nine is fine, again, that Starting, starting early, trying to vaccinate often with constant uh, vaccine reminders, which will bring up, you know, hopefully all of our vaccine efforts. Um, 
you know, this, this has allowed us to persist and constantly grow with our outcome metric, even, even during the pandemic. Thank you. So, um, Dr. Lee, so you have, you've educated and had conversations with your physicians and other clinicians within your network. Um, you've got some data, um, maybe through Arcadia, and you, so you, you've got a population uh, based on, you know, stratification and ages and who actually is eligible for it. How do you then actually, I mean, after launching the campaign, how do you monitor uh, what's happening and uh, showing that actually what you're doing is is effective? Yeah, so uh, shout out to, um, you know, uh, our, our IT team. Uh, you know, a lot of what they do is uh, help get us, put the data in front of us, you know, long gone are the days when you would get an email with a manually updated Excel spreadsheet uh, that uh, looks like the matrix, uh, like the, the stuff in the matrix movie, uh, where it's really just your eyes glaze over. Uh, and we have a much, uh, I would say a much more sophisticated methodology for us to uh, be able to bring data to the point of care. Um, a lot of that is um, ensuring that you have regular review of the data and where we are from a care gap perspective. Um, you know, denominators change, numerators change. Sometimes it feels like the denominator keeps getting bigger and bigger because people age into whatever metric it may be, you know, uh, month over month. But, uh, you know, getting that level of data fluency is really important so that um, your clinical teams are not just... Um, uh, sort of glazing over in their in their mindset uh, when they're uh, have the patient in front of them because a lot of us signed up for that patient to patient you know patient to clinician encounter. Uh, not a lot of us were thinking about the data side of things, but the data can definitely inform that. And um, I think the other thing that was mentioned earlier is that there are no wrong doors, right? So if someone does come in uh, for a, a sprained ankle or something along those lines that that may be unrelated. And you do notice that, you know, I think um, I used to get in trouble as an urgent care physician kind of helping the primary care doctors because uh, urgent care in their mind, they're like, you know, why are you ordering a hemoglobin? Let's see. And I'd say, well, it, it's, it's we're trying to help the patient. Right. So I think that no wrong door policy from a leadership perspective, if uh, if there are executives on this uh, call, uh, just know that, um, you know, when we're trying to take care of patients as physicians, we're, we're not looking at it from an episode to episode mindset. We're actually truly want to uh, think about it from a whole person and, and longitudinal perspective. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so, so let's switch gears a little bit and, and go back to, you know, talk about a lot of great stuff, a lot of great strategies in terms of improving rates. But I think, you know, really what has to happen first, and we've touched on it, is prioritization of, of the vaccine itself, HPV vaccine. Um, and, you know, again, um, many different tools in the toolkit, if you will, uh, data and technology can actually be sort of foundational to kind of help guide that um, and direct resources um, in a smart way and an effective way. Um, and I think we're getting close to sort of wrapping up here in terms of um, our time for the panel. I think we want to leave some time for Mike to wrap up and also some questions. Um, but what I would ask of each of you is um, in terms of prioritization of the vaccine, could you give, you know, in terms of either whether it's technology based or uh, clinically based, um, you know, your recommendation to the audience in terms of how to prioritize the HPV vaccine 
uh, within their organizations. And, and Jay, I'm looking at you right now. So why don't we start with you? Yeah, um, I, I guess maybe at risk of uh, uh, so, sounding too Pollyanna-ish, um, you know, uh, Whitney Houston's uh, saying about this, right? The greatest love of all. And it's, it's, it's our kids. Uh, you know, we often think about the work that we do. Uh, you know, uh, you know, I've done a lot of work with people experiencing homelessness, people with uh, opioid use disorder, and there's sort of a compelling uh, story, right? Uh, and um, everyone's uh, heartstrings get pulled, et cetera. But uh, of the work that we do, uh, at, especially at the community health center level, it's, it's all the prevention that, you know, again, on the face of it doesn't sound very sexy, but is um, actually amongst the, the most important things we, that we can do to um, help um, not only individual health, but the health of the public. And so, um, you know, I, as a leader, I often do try to call that out uh, in meetings. Um, I don't full on break out into karaoke or anything like that, uh, <laughs> Whitney Houston. But um, I do like to point out that the, the work that we do with, with children and with expectant mothers is amongst the, the most critical. And oftentimes that, that, that doesn't get the attention that I think it, it deserves. And so part of that is, a little bit of that is, is the leadership piece of this and then also using the data to kind of support the story, if you will, of, of doing this type of work. Thank you, thank you so much. Dan, how about you in terms of a recommendation? Yeah, you know, so, um, you know, I come at this, it's interesting, but two people on this panel provide um, healthcare across a spectrum of disease processes and general general um, uh, practitioners, pediatricians. You know, I'm, I'm a sub-sub specialist. You know, I do something very specific and very particular, which means I know a lot less about everything else. Um, so I come at it from a different, a very different way, which is this is all I do and all I think about. Uh, you know, HPV, associated cancers, head and neck cancers in particular. And so, you know, the, to me, this is, this is um, you know, a life and death question. I mean, this is a cancer preventing vaccine. It's the only one that we have right now. Um, and so it's of utmost importance. And if people can take a step back and understand what patients go through, develop these types of cancers, um, the morbidity of the treatments, how it changes their lives, the cost of the healthcare systems, um, you know, the immense impact of developing these cancers, which by the way, HPV associated cancers, 5% of all cancers. Okay. So, so 5% of all cancers preventable with, the, with this vaccine. Um, you know, the, the ability to prevent that is, you know, can't be overstated. So mm -hmm. I, 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 you know, I come at this thinking, you know, dealing with these problems all day, every day. Um, so for me, it's, uh, you know, of, of utmost importance. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a really fantastic message. Thank you so much. Um, and, and then TJ, um, from your perspective. Yeah, just again, I think this is one of the few, if only, you know, cancer prevention interventions we have that we know works, right? Versus, oh, if you don't eat grilled food or something else, you know, like that. Like this is a true proven cancer intervention. And so I think um, I, whenever I'm engaging in an audience about this, it's trying to figure out how to maybe share the passion that I have. How do you can take that passion back? Because we know sort of an engaged champion in a process is what also the technology is there to help support, but that strong champion uh, to sort of help bring it home and, and, and keep the um, keep the, the fire going about that this is important and sort of looking at your own data and saying, 
you know, why, why is our HPV vaccination rate lagging from Tdap? And who is it lagging, right? Just keep asking the whys of your data. Why is Dr. A doing it versus Dr. B? Or, you know, it's, there's always, you just have to keep asking the why. That's the analytical part. But then that's also how you can, you know, you could do a massive, um, you know, outreach effort. But even to the statements about disparities or um, I think the way I think about a lot of our outreach is that's a fine, that's a, uh, uh, especially if you're going to involve your staff in doing that outreach, that's a time-intensive resource. So use that time to focus on the patients that you're missing, right? The, the the biggest gaps in, that's where you can use your more intensive resources to um, to try to close that those disparities. Thank you. So I think we're going to, I'm going to turn it back over to Mike before I do. Uh, you know, this has been a great conversation and and I think just Closing on, you know, the prioritization of this and, and you know, touched on, uh, you know, uh, Dan, you touched on, you know, it is the one uh, cancer vaccine that we have and it works. Um, and I think that, you know, it's something that we can do that actually is pretty definitive. Um, and I think it's, it's hugely important. So hopefully that message will resonate um, and then folks will have conversations within their own health systems about trying to prioritize this more. Um, and Mike, I'm going to turn it back over to you. Great. Thanks, Dr. Bien. And thank you, everyone else. I actually have a few audience questions here. Um, lots of good ones came in. So not really sure who I'm going to direct these to. So I'll probably start with you, Dr. Bien, because we didn't hear enough of your expertise. You were driving the discussion most of the time. But uh, everyone should feel comfortable one, though, weighing Mike. it. It's got to be an easy one. <laughs> What's that? has to be an easy one. All right. Um, I don't know if this is an easy one, but it's a good one. Uh, could you discuss the racial disparities concerning HPV vaccinations? 15 years ago, Gardasil was targeting teens of color, yet the vaccination rate among people of color is relatively low. Yeah, I, I mean, that's a I mean, that is a great question. And we should be asking that about everything. Um, I think that it's 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 really not about the HPV vaccine, but I think it's about uh, healthcare care and inequities in general. Um, in terms of, you know, the challenges we still have with access to care uh, in, in particular, that's important. Um, and, um, you know, access in particular neighborhoods. I think that probably there are some cultural differences in terms of communication um, that certainly doesn't help. Um, and I think that there has to be a, a, just like everything, we have to be much more intentional about identifying the disparities. And so looking at the data, right? I mean, actually, are there, are there disparities, racial disparities within our, within our own sets of data? And if there are, we need to fix them, right? And, and so it's, it's really advancing health equity uh, for everything, but in particular for this as well, um, uh, following those, some of those things. And first is understanding your own data and where you need to focus on. And, you know, Mike, I can maybe jump in a little bit and speak just very briefly to this because we, we've done... Um, some survey work in this space out of our vaccine clinic here in Boston, run out of Boston Medical Center, which is a hospital that has a, a very diverse patient population. And what we found, and this this is this work is published, um, is that the individuals who are this is regarding the HIV vaccine only, the individuals who are the least likely to be vaccinated are non-white, non-college educated males, and the individuals who are uh, most likely to be vaccinated are white, college educated females. 
And then there's this like step off as you add or subtract each of those kind of features. And so, um, and there's a pretty big difference. And that that's true. That's that's data comes out of Boston uh, specifically. And, and um, uh, yeah. That's fascinating. And maybe we can get a copy of that research to disseminate to the audience here. Dr. Shook, Dr. Lee, do you have anything to add to this question? Yeah, I, I would just say, um, you know, I think it's been a slow burn, but I think we're in an era now where uh, we're a lot more out uh, about the, the true disparities that exist um, that um, maybe historically we, uh, attributed to, to different populations, but that um, I think we have much more evidence now to show uh, and to support the fact that these are actually structural barriers, not due to any individual's shortcomings. Um, and so what my question would be uh, to the audience is, what are you doing to uh, you know, ameliorate those barriers? Uh, and, and data can certainly help you understand that better to ask the why questions of why is it that, you know, population X is getting this care and population Y is not. Great. Uh, our next question here is, could you all elaborate on the potential impact of low HPV vaccination rates on healthcare costs, patient outcomes, and the overall healthcare system beyond just cancer prevention? So. How does this conversation boil up into the business of health care, I guess, is what this is asking. Dr. Bien, do you want to start us off here? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, prevention is always difficult in terms of trying to align it uh, from a business perspective because there is sometimes such a lag in terms of uh, between the actual preventative care and then, you know, the potential outcome. Um, and I think that, you know, especially when we look at the older population that, you know, Dan has been treating, you know, clearly when somebody has cancer, um, you know, treatable or not, it actually causes a significant amount of uh, distress, obviously, for the patient in particular, but um, unnecessary costs within the healthcare system. And um, unfortunately, that could be prevented. Um, and so I think that, you know, I, I'm not aware of a, any particular um, uh, cost around this, this uh, oropharyngeal uh, cancers, for example, um, or any of the other cancers. Um, it probably is out there. And I would actually ask Dan, maybe if he's aware or even Jay or TJ, they're aware of any of those, that data set. Yeah, I don't know. Um, I can't give you specific numbers. What I can tell you is a healthcare practitioner who treats cancer patients that the costs are, as everyone knows, enormous. Um, you know, a single PET scan costs something like $10,000. A trip to the operating room for a biopsy in our healthcare system, we've, you know, we've looked at for other reasons, costs something around ten dollars to $15,000. Mm -hmm. So these costs are enormous. These are just one or two things I'm picking out of a hat of, uh, that make up a small part of a ca patient's <clears throat> cancer journey treatment, monitoring for the next, you know, five to 10 years, management of their side effects, right? The, the, you know, I, I can't give you numbers, but the costs are enormous. Yeah, and I, I'll, I'll add that, you know, I think this is one of the biggest reasons why um, we need to be making a harder pivot away from strictly fee-for-service um, and more towards value-based care, uh, because as you mentioned, payers are thinking in a, I would say a shorter term 
Um, and oftentimes uh, there is, especially in the Medicaid space, there's a lot of churn, right? We're in the middle of redetermination right now with Medicaid. There's fear that a lot of patients will lose insurance. Um, uh, and then it, it takes sometimes a year or two for them to get uh, back into the loop to get reconnected with care. And so, um, you know, in our network, we've out of the five contracts that we have, we have, we've, we have a value-based care contract. And what that does is it changes the mindset and the mentality from uh, I'm only going to see the patients that are in front of me to actually be thinking about much more intentionally about the patients that haven't been coming in outside those four walls, uh, because there's a um, there's an incentive for us to think outside uh, the box, uh, both financially, but that aligns then with the clinical sort of thinking of like, we're going to care for you as a whole person and as, as a whole patient. Great. So one more here. Uh, I know Dr. Bian already kind of did this, but this was one from uh, one of our attendees. And I just want to get a quick one sentence answer, maybe one or two words from each of you just go around. Uh, what's that one boots on the ground tactic to increase vaccination rates that you would on today? Uh, Dr. Shilk, I'll start with you. Nine is fine. Just start at nine. <laughs> Dr. Faden? Yes, yeah, strong provider recommendation for vaccination. Dr. Lee? Yeah, I would say, um, you know, be be the comprehensivists, right? Uh, uh, don't just deal with what's in front of you and what the, the current complaint is, but think about the other things that your patient deserves and, and needs based on the science and and go for it. Uh, you know, put click that button and order that vaccine. And Dr. Yeah. BM, we'll give you the last word. Yeah, I would say that, you know, we're coming to the end of the year where traditionally we're looking at a lot of preventive care and teams are scrambling to close those gaps. So what I would say is add HPV vaccination rates to your scorecards um, and start there and make it a, a, a goal, set goals and incentives around it in particular. And I think that that can drive, I think, behavior change and all of the other things um, will follow if you actually make that intentional decision to say, we are going to increase our rates this year and we're going to do it by X, Y, and Z. Amazing. Well, I want to thank you all for joining, sharing your expertise. Uh, this has been eye-opening for me and hopefully it's been eye-opening for everyone else who attended. Thank you all for sticking with us to the very last minute here. Um, there, it, there are additional resources in the show notes tab at the bottom of the screen. If you'd like to explore running an outreach program using something like Arcadia Engage, there's a link there for that. You can learn more about Dr. Schutz's specific contributions to preventing HPV cancers, along with other resources that we've cited today. I'll also collect some additional information from all of you, uh, Dr. Fade, and I'd really like to disseminate that study that you mentioned. Uh, the recording of this session will also be available. Keep an eye on your inbox for that. Uh, we have these sessions pretty much every month. Uh, so go to arcadia.io slash vitals to sign up uh, next time and get alerts. And thanks again. We'll see you all next time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much.